Praise the Lord. It's good to be here this morning. First, giving honor to God, Pastor Conway, Lady Jada, One Community Church. Thank you all for having me. I'm excited. Like they said, I'm family. This is what we do. Uh, this is, of course, the first time I've ever done it. Uh, just primarily looking into the outside world. No one here because of social distancing, but nevertheless, the Spirit of God is still here. I just want to thank you all. Now, I do have a bone to pick with you, uh, uh, Pastor Conway. Um, how could you make me have to follow Dr. Tony Evans? I think that's a mean trick. And why did he have to kill it? He could have had an off Sunday. That would have been good. But no, he had to crush it and make me feel like no way I can come up now this week and try to follow. But nah, in all honesty, uh, praise the Lord again. I'm just thankful because this partnership, this friendship, this relationship uh, continues to grow and continues to humble me. Uh, so thank you for just what y'all do. And again, one community uh, all over. And those who are tuning in, uh, this is a family affair. And so uh, thank you for receiving the word of God through a vessel like me. So what I want to do is I want to uh, turn to the Lord in prayer and ask for help. Join me. Gracious God and Father, in the name of your beloved Son, by the power and the access granted by your Spirit, help. Help right now. Help the preacher. Help the listener. In Jesus' name, amen. My first song that I ever published was called Heaven's Mentality. It went, feel the vibe of a new way of thought. We fall short, but the Lord God gave child support. Caught up in the rapture of love. A whole family that's been bought by the blood. And a new mindset is what God gives them. Brand new rules and new tools for the living on this earth in case in a dirt prison. New talk with the cross sought as the wisdom. I stopped wishing for the old time religion. Now I'm drawn to the bread of life like a pigeon. The risen sun, he's the reality. So make way for heaven's mentality. I got it. Yeah, I want it. Yeah, I need it. Yeah, I'm on it. Yeah, I like this. It's the hypest. It's the brand new mind of the righteous. I got it. I want it. I need it. I'm on it. I like this. It's the hypest. It's the brand new mind of the righteous. <laughs> that was one of my first songs and the first one I ever published. And I thought about that as we approach today's text. We're going back to the basics, I was told. And there's nothing more basic than the twin responsibilities of the Christian. God and neighbor as self, or the heavenly and the earthly. In fact, when these two are not rightly kept together, they often result in people criticizing the church. Perhaps you've heard the adage, you can't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Oh, people actually have a point there. This pushes back on the person who has a mountain of religion and yet a molehill of the true relationship. These are people who live with their head in the clouds while the neighborhood lives in shambles. 
This is those who have this notion that they can have a, a, a fervent, a heavenly piety with little faithful practice. Perhaps this is what the scriptures points out when it introduces us to that Levite and that priest in the story of the Good Samaritan. You remember it, don't you? Where the Levite and the priest, they sidestep a man in their path that's clearly suffering in need of a touch of the hand of people of God just so they can get to the temple or maybe stay unstained. Perhaps this is getting at that person in Matthew 5 who said to leave out on a conflict resolution situation to take their gift to the altar. And Jesus says, no, first go reconcile with your brother and then come offer your gift. Maybe this is even what the Bible is getting at. First Corinthians 7, you may not know this, but in 1 Corinthians 7, there were actually people who believed it was more spiritual to marry couples to not have physical intimacy because that was believed to be less than spiritual. Paul says that's not a heavenly mindset and it's bad marital practice. This is certainly what Dr. King was getting at in his letter from a Birmingham jail when he accused the church of not leveraging its influence and its involvement to the struggle for civil rights, even when many people within the church were actually in need of those civil rights. Oh, regardless, let's not forget ourselves how often we bypass earthly responsibility claiming that we're doing kingdom business. Well, the adage is justified. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. But on the flip, some people are so earthly minded that they're no heavenly good we sound like act like crave pursue fret over the same thing that everyone else does on earth people who don't know god we don't look any different hmm. it's not just us you can look in your bible the very early christian community the epistle of james which is the earliest new testament work that we have in our bible talks about worldliness talks about being friends with the world or the earth in order. He says, don't you know that to be friends with the world is to be enemies with God because they were being worldly. They were gravitating toward earthly things rather than honoring heavenly things. Well, the scriptures would strike back. Don't be so earthly minded that you're no heavenly good. And our text, Colossians 3, 1 to 11 this morning, talks about being heavenly minded in order that you may be earthly good. The times call for that. The times demand this combination. The world has lost its mind. There's little peace and a lot of pandemic, little reconciliation and a lot of racial tension, just to name a few. The times are ripe for people who have the DNA of heaven without being MIA on earth. So here's the point. Only those who stay heavenly minded can bring about ultimate and maximum earthly good. Only those who stay heavenly minded can bring about ultimate and maximum earthly good. Join me in the text. Starts out making the point that the heavenly minded have a Christian identity marked by a Christ priority. No, verse one. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated 
at the right hand of God. If then you have been raised with Christ. Paul begins with an assumption. An assumption that he's talking to Christians. Show enough Christians. Not just church folk. Not just religious people. But Christians. And the way he makes that clear is he says the true definition of a Christian is one who has been crucified with Christ. Born anew. Raised with Christ. Four times in this verse, it mentions Christ. He is the center of attention of this text. And all who relate to him, especially when they're joined to him, are called Christians. There's a lot of baggage with that word Christian. So a lot of people like to come up with other cool ways to say they belong to Jesus. But the scriptures talks about believers being Christians because we have, we're more than just imitators or followers. We've been joined to him in Christ. Everything you are, everything you have if you're a Christian is now connected to and owed to Jesus the Christ. The Bible says that's what baptism is all about. Some people think baptism is just a cute time with a dip and a dip and then they come up and they don't even think about their baptism except for saying once I was baptized. But the Bible says, no, baptism is that ongoing reality that lets you know the old you died and the new you arises. Earlier, a couple uh, a chapter earlier, Paul tells that to the Colossians. 2, 12, he says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. He says that they had been raised with him. So now in chapter 3, he says, so if you have been raised with him, then you've undergone a death. People fake their death all the time. I looked at some of them. They fake their death because they want a new life. Their current life is filled with so much they want to escape that they say, I better die so I can arise and become someone new. Sometimes they want to be free of debt. Sometimes they want to be free from prosecution because of their criminal acts. One guy, or a few of them actually, died so that they could divorce their, be free from their partners and run off with somebody else. Sheesh. (laughs) Well, it figures. Jesus says the same thing. Your life is so riddled with problems in Adam that God had to crucify you with Christ and raise you anew. In Adam, we were in debt to our sin. In Adam, we were guilty criminals and, 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 and we were about to be persecuted. Excuse me. In Adam, you and I were married to the law of sin and death. The only hope was for God to crucify us and raise us anew. Non-Christian. If you're tuning in, we're so glad you're with us. Question, have you been raised with Christ? And if not, you can do that now. This is a starting point. This can happen to you. If you would confess your sin, if you would turn from it, if you would ask the Lord who sent his son to allow the death of Christ to count for you, in the resurrection of Christ to apply to you, then you can say, I have been raised with Christ. In this era, the Black Lives Matter era, we're hearing a lot about identity, black identity and white identity, American identity. Oh, everybody's talking about identity. Paul says, can I talk about Christ identity? (laughs) 
I want to talk about people who have a new identity because they've been raised with Christ. And when that happens, everything is new. Some time ago at my seminary, a speaker came in and told us about having adopted a new daughter. This daughter was, there was two sisters. Both of them had the same mother and father. The mother was deemed unfit. The father died. Therefore, the state took over. They became property of the state. That's who fed them. That's who housed them. That's who clothed them. That's who determined what things would pertain to them. One day, the youngest, named Lily, was adopted by a Christian family. That Christian family changed everything. She was no longer property of the state. She was a daughter. She was no longer just one with a caseworker. She had parents, a mother and a father. She was no longer who she used to be. She used to be needy. She used to be uh, one person, but now she has a new name. Everything for Lily changed. The family invited the sister over regularly, even though they couldn't adopt her because her trauma and the things she had been through were a little more severe than Lily's. And one day, the sister looked at the father of Lily and said, I'm glad that Lily now has a dad. Isn't that something? These two sisters no longer have the same dad. Lily now has a father and the other one doesn't. That's because Lily has a new identity. The old Lily has gone, new has come. That's why the Bible said, if any man be in Christ, new creation. The old is past, the new has come. And that's what Paul is saying. New things because of a new identity. He starts with new priorities for you now. You can have new priorities. If then you have been raised with Christ, verse 1. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul says, because you're new in Christ, make him your top priority. Seek him. Pursue him. Prefer Jesus above things and the things that relate rightly to Jesus. Pursue him. Seek him. Hmm, why? Because of where he's seated. He's seated it says, at the right hand of the Father. In the Bible, that's the place of power. That's the place of preeminence, first place in everything. That's the place of priority. That's the place of potency. The Lord Jesus occupies the throne. Paul is leveraging Psalm 110. It's the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And it is a psalm that says, sit at my right hand. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus says, I sit in the place of priority. So prioritize me. Paul says, if you're new, prioritize Jesus because of where he sits. He's seated. He's seated on the throne. This is why the demons have to fall down. This is why. Disease has to fall back. This is why storms have to be still. This is why death has to be gone. Jesus sits at the right hand and he is the one who brings this to pass. He's seated. He's not up negotiating. He's not up talking. He's seated ruling. 
And so he says, if Jesus is your Lord, prioritize him. Goes on and says, not only that, be persuaded about this Jesus. Set your mind on things, verse 2, that are above, not on things that are on the earth. This word set means to settle your mind on this. Be fixed to take his side, to come to a conclusion that Jesus is who he said he is. Set your mind, fix your mind, fasten your mind, dwell on him and stay there. Don't rush off. One person is asked, what do you think about when there's nothing to think about? Usually we plug it with stuff. Paul would say, plug it with Jesus. <laughs> Turn the distractions off. Put the rivals away, though he has no rivals. He has no equals. You know how we say it? Be convinced about Jesus and the superiority of the things that relate to Jesus. He says, set your mind on things above and not on things below. This concept of things above and things below remind us of the heavenly and the earthly. But you said we're supposed to be earthly good. Why not set my mind on the earth? Well, what Jesus is doing through Paul is reminding us that he made both of them. But he relates to them differently because they relate to him differently. In other words, look at this in the Bible. Jesus made both heaven and earth, seen and unseen, up and down. Genesis 1. John 1, Colossians 1, read it when you get time. It talks about Jesus making everything. Then it says that Jesus identifies with the above. Listen to what he told Nicodemus in John. You are from below. I, excuse me, this is the Pharisees. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. He told Nicodemus, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. You see, Jesus says, I represent the up, the above things. You seem to be preoccupied with the below things. Sometimes the earth is just neutral. He told Nicodemus, if I told you earthly things, regular stuff, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things, spiritual things, Jesus-centered things. Sometimes earth is a way to talk about that which is hostile. Like when the ground is cursed and it becomes the stage of fallen creation in Genesis 3. Or in Psalm 14, where the psalmist basically says God looked down to see among the children of man, God looked down to see among the children of man if there were any who understand, any who seek God, and he determined, no, not one. The earth is the place that fails to recognize the supremacy and the centrality of the Lord Jesus. So he says, but for my people, those who have been raised, I am your priority, and let this be your persuasion. Everything has its place. But some things are better than others in Jesus's world. There's a caution that a historian, a Christian historian, Mark Knoll, gives us. He said, I was brought up in a Christian environment where God had to be given preeminence and nothing else was allowed to be important. 
but I've broken through to the place where I recognize because God exists, everything has significance. And this is why the Bible does not dismiss earth. It only puts it in right perspective. What does it profit for a man to gain the world and lose his soul? This is the same Jesus who said, use money to make friends for who will welcome you in eternal dwellings. How about 1 Timothy 4? I'm on Weight Watchers right now because I saw the benefits it gave my wife. And so I said, for a month, let me try it. <laughs> and I'm reminded that Timothy was told by Paul, bodily training is of some value, but godliness is valuable in every way, for it has promise in this life and the life to come. So Jesus says, be preoccupied with things that have promised, not only in this life, but for the life to come. This is why he told the rich man, if you know your Bibles, he said, you have a lot of stuff, but your soul is required of you. This is what's going to happen to people who are not rich toward God. Oh, we're talking about set your mind on things above, above things, not on things below. Things that exclude Jesus, that leave him out. Why? Because of where he's seated. He is in the place of priority. Let this be your persuasion. The heavenly minded have this, this, this Christian identity and Christ as their priority. Oh, but they also have a glorious destiny in spite of or despite the fact they often have external humility. The church doesn't look all that impressive often. The church doesn't seem to be the people who have it going on often, but they have a glorious destiny. Look at verse uh, 3 to 4. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears... Then you also will appear with him in glory. What he says is, you've died and you're hidden. Christ being center stage, Christ being the priority, means that you are not and I am not and we lose. But that's all right. The Bible explains it this way. Because you're hidden in Christ. He is your life. You are hidden in Christ. And when he appears, then you will appear with him in glory. This hiddenness is a Christian truth. But remember, the hiddenness, the humility, the earthen vessel that we have that is what people see houses a treasure that people don't see. The Lord Jesus himself adopted a hiddenness when he walked the earth. Remember that when the Lord Jesus was here, he veiled his glory. He hid his glory from people. He tucked it inside of some regularness. He looked like a normal baby when he came out. We saw him looking like an underprivileged toddler when he was in a manger around two-ish. He looked like an average teenager when he, was when he was 12 and went to the temple. He looked like an average or a common carpenter, I'm sure, though the text doesn't give us those years. He grew up and looked like a regular rabbi. Eventually... He looked like a guilty criminal on the cross. And yet we know that that hiddenness was just the precursor to a, a glory that was to come. Because three days later, after they put his common corpse into the body, into the grave, he got up with all power and with glory. 
He says, your life is hidden. And when Christ appears, you will appear with him in the glory that is to be revealed. Like the moon radiates the, and reflects the sun's light, so you and I will radiate and reflect the light of Christ. Oh, this hiddenness. Paul says, heavenly minded people don't mind letting Jesus be in the center and they stay hidden behind him, playing the background. You know, every now and then you may have a job where you have to wear a uniform. Most people don't like the uniforms of their jobs. They like their clothes better. (laughs) They want to go to work and look fly. (laughs) They get their hair done. They don't want to cover it. (laughs) So they go in. But in a uniform, who you are is tucked behind the company name and their purposes. Regardless of what you want to wear, you wear their uniform because it's about them when you go to work. You got your hair done, they say, but you're working around food, put this net on and throw this cap on. Okay, you say, I look stupid. They say, that's all right. We're showing us off, not you. That's exactly what we're saying as Christians. Jesus is showing himself off, not us. You're hid. Where'd you go? Oh, I'm tucked behind his aims. Where'd you go? I'm tucked behind his purposes. Where'd you go? I'm tucked behind his glory. Where'd you go? I'm tucked behind and eclipsed by his renown. Heavenly minded people let Jesus be in the front and they stay hidden knowing that glory cometh. Some of the preachers say money cometh. Somebody say money cometh. Paul says glory cometh when Jesus appears. But there's a reason why he does this. Not just for his glory, but for our good. It's in this hiddenness that he shapes us and makes us to be like the Christ we've been called. He makes us look like our identity. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. This is what we call sanctification. You know that big church word, that Bible word, sanctification. Becoming like what God has called you. Let me let Reverend Parrish a 19th century colored Baptist who said it this way with the whole Bible before us we can say that the doctrine of sanctification is setting apart to a holy service a progressive conformity to the image of Christ a carrying on of what regeneration begins the 11 disciples needed a clearer apprehension of Christ and the truth and a holier character There was holiness in the heart, a supernatural production affected by regeneration. But this holiness was in its beginning. For the fuller development of this holiness, the master prayed, John 17, 17. Holiness was to fill the hearts of the disciples, mortify the deeds, that means kill, kill the deeds of the flesh, strengthening and developing the new nature, subduing and deadening the old man and his deeds. Parish is right. Parish is right. This is what hiddenness with Christ and the sanctifying grace of God does for his people. And so, heavenly-minded people have a Christian identity, Christ's priority. They don't mind Jesus being the center of attention. They keep their mind fixed there. They keep their pursuits aimed there. Let that be you and I today. But what about the earthly good? What about the earthly good? Well, 5 to 11 deals with how that heavenly mindset ought to make us act on the earth. 
The earthly good are committed to personal purity and God-ordained harmony. I would say unity, but unity is us being together. Harmony is us getting along when we're together. Watch this. First, personal purity. Addressing the inner person's sins. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Let Reverend Paris speak again. Make your faith in Christ real in yourself. Let holiness within be seen as holiness without. (laughs) Isn't that good the way the Bible always tells you deal with you before you go out there and try to deal with others? Isn't this sobering to know that before we complain about the system or the society that we have to complain about self isn't it good to know that the bible tells us first base is putting to death the deeds of your own sin there's enough in us to mess a perfect world up he says how about the sexual immorality unlawful and unsanctioned acts sexually he goes straight for one of the chief manifestations of us being lord of ourselves doing what we want with our body often which leads us to immorality unlawful unsanctioned sexual activity under the lordship of christ sex is good however when we want to be lord we take it and we do it our way (laughs) outside of the lordship context sex is not good it's immorality and in paul's day he said their god is their belly and we fill up. How about impurity? He goes on to tell you that that fruit is from a root. <laughs> impurity is the uncleanliness, uh, the, 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 the moral taint, the stuff that leads to the sexual immorality. Next, passion. That's the emotional longing for it. I want it, so I go after the context. Then the context leads to the deed How about evildoer? That's evil desires. That's the the pulls, the tugs that take us away from God's design to do something else. And covetousness, that's us wanting more than God has allotted. God says, I gave you a wife. Why are you going after that one? God says, I gave you money. Why are you stealing that one? God says, I gave you, but you want more. He told that to King David. He says, I gave you all, and if you needed more, I had it. Why would you do what you did? With Bathsheba, Paul says, put these things to death because this is idolatry. You wanting to be Lord when we already said he's at the right hand. Lesson one, do the earth good by first keeping you in check. Immorality, keep your appetites in check. Impurity, keep your diet, what you listen to, what you see in check. Passions, keep your emotions in check. Emotions off the handle will get you in trouble. Evil desires, covetousness, keep your ambitions to be number one in check. This is idolatry. Why? Because you know how God feels about it and what he plans to do about it. Verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Plus, this is not like you. You're anew, remember? In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. (laughs) Oh, the Bible is so complete. You're new, so act like it. Put to death the things that are inconsistent with your newness. Hmm. Imagine Lily. Imagine if Lily still lived like she lived when she was with the state. She used to have no money, so she stole. Now she has a bank account. Just write a check. She didn't have a home. She went 
to where the state provided her. Now she goes home with her own key, goes up in her bed. Probably at one time, if it wasn't for the state, she couldn't address her teeth if she had cavities. Now she can go to the dentist and get new pearlies. The Christian says earth would be better if starting with me, there was one less pimp, one less crook, one less broken marriage, one less home wrecker, one less adulterer, one less angry person. Lesson two, do the earth good by pursuing harmony in the church and in the world. Look at verse eight. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. This set of sins is particularly damaging to God's reconciliation work in the world. Think about anger. That's that prolonged fury that if it's not checked early, leads to worse things. The Bible says be angry and sin not. The Bible says anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God. The Bible says don't let the sun go down on your wrath or your anger. So anger is that thing, that emotion that can get out of hand. He says, put to death anger. Put to death rage. That's when it outbreaks. Rage and wrath is the outbreak of it. Put to death outbreak of your anger. Malice, that's evil intentions because you're mad. <laughs> Slander, that's when your lips get in on the action and tear someone down. Oh, and then there's the last one. Obscene talk. The Greek word is really the word for blaspheme. It means to speak against God or his image bearers. Now you see how these are interpersonal sins, sins that you commit against others. Immorality and, and lust, and all, that's what's you, inside you. These are the things that come out and mess the community up, the church and the world. Imagine how the earth would be better if flames of anger were quickly doused. If wrath was subdued by grace, malice was replaced by mercy, slander was subverted by truth, speech worthy of God and image bearers came off our lips. Imagine how the earth would be better <laughs> to, the in, to the individual Christian. Let's apply this as we begin to come in. 9 to 11. Imagine, Christian, a world filled with people who look like their new identity. Verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. See, this is the takeoff list. When he gets to 12, to like 14, it's going to be the put on. We don't have time for that. This is at least stop. <laughs> at least stop. <laughs> Martin Luther King said, okay, so the law can't make you love me. It could at least stop you from lynching me. <laughs> We can get to you loving me. Just stop lynching me. He says, we can get to what you put on. At least take off these things. Imagine. Imagine a church. Not just a Christian, but a church. Verse 11. Here, there is not Jew, Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, free, slave, but Christ is all in all. It's in the church, not in society, though we're striving to try to help society get a little taste, taste. It's in the church that there's no distinctions that cause divisions, that our differences don't have to be division. 
Christ is all in all. And when Christ is all in all, we prioritize him. We're persuaded that he is who he says he is. And we commit ourselves to first personal purity and then community and corporate harmony. Is that you today? It's about Jesus. Christ should be all in all. You know, Leonardo da Vinci, that famous painter, one day was hired to paint a picture of the Lord's Supper. And so he spent about three years on the project. He wanted to get it perfect. He put Christ in the center where he belongs, surrounded by his disciples. And in the hand, he chose to paint, have the cup. And the cup he painted with a mesmerizing realism. It was just a creative touch. The cup jumped out. It was so much, so real. Before he gave it to the patron, he asked his friend to come in. He said, what do you think about it? The guy said, this is wonderful. And that cup, I can hardly take my eyes off of it. Leonardo da Vinci took his brush and he crossed the, the cup out and said, nothing will detract from the figure of Christ. That should be the Christian perspective. The heavenly minded says, Christ is all in all. Nothing should detract. I have him as priority. So I deal with my own purity and in the world, I promote harmony. The world is better off when we're heavenly minded, thinking on Christ, seeking Christ, cherishing Christ, staying fixed on Christ, staying hidden in Christ, staying true to Christ, exalting in Christ on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we bless your name for these truths. Would you apply them to our hearts, bury them deep within us, in Jesus' name.